sure I got my cues in place. I'm getting a little better at your order of worship here. It's, uh, it's been a little bit of work to get this figured out, but um, I think I'm doing all right today. <laughs> all right. Don't you just hate waiting? <laughs> Our society has grown very impatient, hasn't it? The, the more we're able to have instant access to things, I think the more impatient we grow. Um, some of you in this room, I'm sure, remember a time before the microwave. And um, yeah, there's a hand. There's a witness. <laughs> well, I remember as a child hearing that it was still kind of a new thing and, um, you know, color TVs and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, the microwave has, has it made us more or less patient? What is your observation? Less patient. Yeah, in fact, I remember we had a microwave where you had to actually push all the buttons in the time to make it go the time you wanted it to. Nowadays, they advertise, they've got all these extra buttons that you push one button and it pops your popcorn or it'll reheat your food without you having to do anything. It's just, they took a convenience and made it super convenient. Now, when you have a device that is... Uh, more challenging, like you have to turn a knob or push all the buttons to get the time you want. It's so frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> How inconvenient. We have to push three buttons instead of one to get our food hot extra quick. Well, waiting is definitely one of those things that um, we're not very fond of. And I think even Amazon Prime has based its uh, shipping model on that. Uh, you will pay extra for something you can get tonight or tomorrow. You just will, because that's convenient. Even though you don't need it, you will pay extra for it. And they figured this out. They're making money off it, because we're impatient. We don't like waiting. We don't like waiting. In fact, one of the uh, virtues, um, one of the godly virtues that the Bible talks about is patience. And uh, we don't like that one, do we? <laughs> well, um, here in the book of Ruth, um, we've been... I'm going to come back to what we were, talked about last week. Last week, we talked about how the family had went away from God, and then two people from the family came back to God, Naomi and um, Ruth. And, and then Ruth decided to just get busy with what God had given her, and God providentially led her into a situation where she was working for a man who could be a help to her and her family for their future. But as we turn the page to chapter 3, we find that everything stopped. All of this positive momentum that they had gained by coming back and following after God just kind of stalled and nothing came of it. And we read of Ruth working through the entire harvest of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, two harvests. And nothing more had happened between her and Boaz. Things were the same. Stall. And she's found herself waiting, waiting for her Redeemer to redeem her. It's at this point that we will pick up and read what happens next in chapter 3. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may go well for you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? 
See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered her feet and lay down. At midnight the man was stirred and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow kinsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he will not redeem, is, is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize one another, and he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring your garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You shall not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do when God shows you a clear path that he wants you to follow? And then all of a sudden you hit a stall and nothing is moving forward. If you've uh, been around for a little while, you'll have experienced these things in your life. This happens to us even today. And many people have different approaches to how you go about addressing that very concern. Um, some have this idea of, hey, you just have to let go and let God work it out. Just be patient and all will be well. You'll see. Where others say, you got to give it your all. Do everything you can do to make something move forward. Well, is there a middle ground on these two extremes? How should we as Christians view this concern in our life of having to wait and be patient for God's timing after he's shown us a direction? I've seen this question come up quite a few times, and it usually revolves around finding a spouse or taking a new job or making a large purchase or things, you know, big things, life-changing things. I especially noticed this challenge when I was heading off to seminary and I had to face that issue myself. And I took counsel 
uh, with a lot of pastors, and I was surprised at the diversity of counsel that I received when I took counsel. Um, the first uh, people that I counseled with, and by the way, these are all Reformed ministers, so we're not talking about theological differences here. We're talking about um, their personal uh, approach to these things. Um, one of them, or sorry, several of them said to me, you got to trust in the sovereignty of God. If he called you to go to seminary, he's going to provide a way. Don't worry about it. Just continue on your business, and God will take care of all of the details. Um, and I say, make all the plans you want, but your plans are going to change, so why worry about it? Why fret? Just keep going through the open doors that God places before you, and he'll lead you where he wants you. And they had a concern with people being too busy with pursuing after God's uh, revealed plan for their life because they feel like if you, you can get too hung up on your own plans and your own abilities, and you can actually have a lack of faith be manifest by your busyness and your effort trying to make things happen. And that is true. God is sovereign, and he can bring his plans to pass with little or no help from us, and we can get encumbered with our putting in our own effort and, and trying to make things work in our own strength. That can manifest a lack of strength. Was not Abraham commanded to give up his great riches and his responsibility in his family as the firstborn to go abroad without knowing where God was going to send him? Yeah, this is a very biblical approach to following after God's revealed will. Were there not times in Israel's life where they were told to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord? Has God fought their battles for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is very biblical. But then I talked to some other pastors in our circles, and they had a different approach. They said, you know, God is sovereign, but man is also responsible. And so you have a responsibility as, as a husband, as a father of, at that time, four children, as a, a homeowner, a business owner. You have responsibilities, and God is giving you a brain. He's giving you wisdom, and he calls you in the scriptures over and over again to use wisdom, use a multitude of counselors. Figure things out. He gave you a brain, and he wants you to use it. Don't neglect using those resources that God has given you, and use them to your best. Don't just rely on God to take care of all the things. Yes, he will have faith, but he also wants you to be diligent. He wants you to be diligent. Did not Joseph plan and prepare in light of the dream that he interpreted from Pharaoh? I mean, God gave him a clue. Something's going to happen, and he didn't tell him what to do about it. He figured he's going to have Joseph do that work. And Joseph did. God used his wisdom, or Joseph used his wisdom to plan and prepare, and that wound up saving many people from starvation. And does not God normally did not God normally win the battles with Israel by them going and fighting? Them actually putting in the effort to win the battle? Did, God, did not God call them 
to pursue after their enemies and fight with all their might? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Both of these things are in Scripture. And while they may seem contradictory at first, I believe the Bible teaches both of them, and they both have their place. God is sovereign, man is responsibility, and God works with his people through both of these approaches. In fact, we actually see God working through both of these approaches within the book of Ruth itself. We see God's sovereignty at work when Ruth simply got to work and happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. That wasn't her effort. That wasn't her plan. God did that. She simply did what she was able to do, and God took care of the rest. And I think this teaches us something really important, and that is that everything is not dependent upon our own abilities and plans. Everything God is doing is not dependent on our abilities and our plans. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a relief to know that God's plans aren't going to fail or fall apart because of us? No, God's in control. God's sovereign. He's going to make sure his plans come to pass. It's not all riding on us. And so we have the ability to just trust God and move forward knowing he's going to take care of things. That is definitely part of his wisdom, and Ruth did that. We also see God working through Ruth and Naomi's plans in chapter 3 here with their plan to pursue Boaz using godly wisdom. And so today, I want to look at this idea of godly planning, godly planning. Because I think in our reform circles, we tend to err towards the side of, let's just trust God, and he'll take care of everything. And, and that might lean us away from taking the responsibility that God has given us uh, to an appropriate level. And so I want to um, share with you some things about godly planning, as I think this is uh, very pertinent to our group. Um, godly planning is something that is not antithetical to faith. It's not antithetical to faith. Uh, just because you make a plan doesn't mean it doesn't have faith involved in it. Um, I have met people who would say that planning is antithetical to faith. Um, I, I know some people who uh, do not plan their sermons. Uh, they do not plan their order of worship. They they think doing so limits the Holy Spirit and his ability to lead and guide and direct in the service. Um, but I also know that when I'm planning a service, uh, I'm also listening to the Holy Spirit at that point. And God is leading in that point as well. And I don't know how your church does it, but in a lot of churches I've been part of, um, the people who plan the music and the people who plan the sermons and the those people don't always coordinate. <laughs> but yet it's amazing how often uh, the, the songs do match up as God providentially w um, brings them together. Um, is it a sin to plan the songs so that they match? No. Is it lacking faith? I don't think so. But is it also sinful to not plan those things together and just see how they fall? I don't think so either. I think either way, it, it can be a matter of faith to put those things together. 
Um, it involves faith in trusting God that he's going to do what he wants with these things, regardless of our plan or lack of planning. Godly planning is also not antithetical to being dependent on God. You know, our plans require wisdom as well as dependence on God. I, I like what it says here in the book of James. Um, it kind of challenges those people who plan apart from God. It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. And some people look at this and say, see, God is not about you making plants. You ought to just trust God. But, but when you actually read it carefully, you notice God didn't say the problem was them making plans. The problem was them not trusting God as they make plans. In fact, his correction to them includes them making plans. Plans with the Lord and, his, and their dependence on him. So planning is not antithetical to depending upon God. No. And godly planning, I would say, actually is a reflection of God who plans good for his people. So this is a godly trait that we plan. It's a godly thing. Jeremiah chapter 29 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. God plans. And if God plans, it has to be good. It has to be good. You know, um, when you think about this plan here, this, his plan for welfare and not evil, for future and for a hope, we can look at that from the temporal side of things and say, yeah, God intends good for us. And he often does in the temporal realm, but, but not everybody experiences good in the temporal realm. Uh, not everybody has a happy ending in this life. We think about what's going on over the, in Israel right now, over in the Middle East. And there's a lot of people who are not going to have a happy ending this year. There's a lot, of, a lot of bad things happening over there. I got to see some of it while I was over in the Middle East last year. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, you're used to driving through a town and seeing you know, everything's pretty decent and nice and uh, everything's set up for, for businesses and such. Um, but sometimes you might go through a town where it's a little bit run down. Uh, the towns that I went through were run down. Uh, they didn't have zoning codes, so everything was cobbled together. And on top of that, you could see evidence that there had been war in the region. Some things were riddled with bullets or some things were mangled from a bomb and it's just there you know this is where people live this is what they have to deal with um, every morning um, and that and that's life over there in the Middle East right now we got young kids who've grown up only knowing that life a life where um, everybody has to carry around uh, rifles because that's the nature of the security of the region you need to be able to protect yourself and your family that's not, a, that's not a happy life, not the way that we're used to experiencing it. And so this promise that God has plans for us for good, well, often we do see good in this life. Often we do experience 
blessings in this life, it, that promise isn't ultimately fulfilled by how things turn out in our life in this world. Ultimately, that promise of God making his plan ultimately sees its fulfillment in its plan for how Jesus redeems us and has a plan to make us alive and make us free from sin and make us born again into a new life, a new world. Well, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where none of these awful things happen. No, no more curse from sin. Uh, that means it won't be a downhill trajectory for all of us for all of eternity. We'll, we'll get to live in a stable state of maturity and, and know what a good, wholesome, steady life is really like. No more sickness, no more pain, no more goodbyes. That's the plans God has for us. God's plans will come to pass, and they're good. And our planning, as we plan to try to coincide with God's plans, is a godly thing. It's a good thing. It's not contrary to faith. It's not contrary to dependence on God. In fact, it's working with God. God and his plans often works with us, not apart from us. And so when God wants to feed people, he teaches, he, he has plans for farmers to plant food and raise the food and be able to provide that food for other people. And uh, if you've ever gone through the work of like examining how things get from one state to another, like from their natural resources to the thing that you hold in your hand or, or consume, um, it's very interesting, all of the things that have to happen to bring those things to pass. And God has thought of all of those things in his plans. Now, it blows my mind every time I try to think about it. What does it take to put a couch in my living room? Uh, that's a lot to think about. And sometimes I'll think about it and I'll get overwhelmed. But thank God, again, going back to the beginning, God isn't dependent upon us to accomplish his plans. He uses us, but he's not dependent upon us. And so we, we can have faith that God's got all that taken care of. God's got all these details. Uh, so, so as we think about planning, it's, it's a good thing. It's a wholesome thing. It's a godly thing. And God actually calls us to do it. But let's look at this plan that we see that Naomi has developed. And let's, ex let's use this as a test case to examine if this is a good plan or a godly plan or not. And I'm going to use uh, three test questions for this. I'm going to ask, is this a morally good plan? That is, is this fitting with God's law? And that's an objective standard. That's something we can pretty much determine. Is this holy or not? Is this according to God's law or not? And then we'll ask, is this a practically good plan? Is this fitting with the circumstances? That's pretty subjective, uh, but we're going to look at that as well because, hey, most of these things, um, most of these uh, things that we, that we deal with in life are subjective, or at least have a subjective element to them, and planning is, is no different. And then lastly, I'm going to ask, are they trusting God through all of this? That is, are they acting in faith, faith in God and his promises to them? All right, so let's look at Naomi's plan and those terms. First, I would say Naomi's plan is morally good. It is a morally good plan here. 
Starts off saying, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that may go well, well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? Now what she's appealing to here is that it's good and right to seek rest for her daughter-in-law. And Boaz is her relative. That's referring back to that kinsman redeemer law that's in the Old Testament, where God had put a safety net in the society to help people who are in the situation Ruth and Boaz, or I'm sorry, Ruth and Naomi are in. They're widows. They need family support, and this helps take care of that. But I want you to notice something different about Naomi's plan in this chapter versus her original plan back in chapter one. It, I, we didn't go over this together, but in chapter one, Naomi had actually told her daughters-in-laws to stay in Moab while she was planning to go back to Israel. And her plan was to seek the best interest of her daughters, thinking they would never find a husband in Israel. And so her plan was stay in Moab, find a husband, and then take care of yourself back here. Now that plan, objectively, is not a good plan. It's, a, it's an ungodly plan, and I should say. In that she was basically instructing her daughters-in-laws to pursue men who are not godly, to go after, ser go back to serving their old gods, to go away from God and his people. That's not good. That's not good advice. So Naomi's advice back there was terrible according to this criteria of being morally right and good and according to God's law. But this plan here, now she's back following after God. Now, now this plan... This plan actually is godly. It actually is morally fitting with God's plan. Na Naomi recognized God's providence in orchestrating Ruth and Boaz to get together by, by her working in his field. So she recognized God's at work, and she was looking to God to, uh, to make this plan, this plan, uh, come to pass where it would help her and her family. This plan that, that they're making is to connect Ruth and Boaz together, and this is a godly plan. It's in keeping with God's law. It's fitting. Um, Boaz is the right kind of person to fit, uh, to, to, to help out uh, Ruth and Naomi according to God's law. And so it appears that Naomi's plan is morally good, and it's fitting with God's law. I would say it is a good plan in that regard. But is it a practically good plan? Is it fitting with the good is it fitting with the situation, with the circumstances? And again, I see that it is a practically good plan. As she appeals to the timing of all of this. She says, "See, he's winnowing in the barley. He's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor and and so she's referencing the timing of all of this. She's like, now is the time to act. This is the harvest time. Do we have any farmers here? Uh, anybody who's familiar with farming, the farming world? Okay, nobody. Wow, that's kind of surprising. <laughs> We've got lots of farms around here. Okay, well, okay, well, I'll tell you this. When, when it's harvest season, which is now for some places, um, it's usually a happy time. Maybe not so much while they're doing the harvesting work, because that's hard work. But when they bring it all in and they count up all the beans, so to speak, this is a good time. 
this is happy time. This is when the farmers are getting paid for the year. Uh, this is a great time. And so, so Boaz is going to be in a good mood. This is a great time to ask a favor of him. That's kind of what we're going after here. And so this seems to be a good plan as far as timing. And Naomi also takes nothing for granted and makes sure that Ruth makes proper preparations as she goes to make her request. And she wants to make sure that uh, perceptions are also properly managed, which is another important aspect of making a good plan. Um, she tells Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And so she's causing her to consider all the aspects of this plan to make sure it's, it's done just right. Everything is in good taste, good timing, and, uh, and is practically good. Well, so far her plan, Naomi's plan, is checking out to be a godly plan, but there's this other thing that kind of comes up in this passage that kind of causes people's eyebrows to go up. <laughs> it's in verse 4. It says, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. That sounds a little suggestive, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, what are we going for here, guys? What's, what's happening here? Uh, I thought we were going down a morally high road, and now it looks like we may not be uh, morally so high after all. But um, if you think that sounds bad in English, it actually sounds worse in Hebrew. <laughs> um, the word for lie down, which occurs eight times in this chapter, it's a repeat, repeating word to get your attention. Uh, it also has a double meaning with uh, double entendre, like to sleep with, as we would say in our culture. So this is a very suggestive word. And to uncover one's feet is also another possible euphemism. And the threshing floor was known for its party atmosphere and its loose standards of conduct. It would be comparable to a nightclub or a bar. So when you're adding all these little elements together, it paints a rather startling picture. And we start to ask ourselves, what is going on here, Naomi? Are you kind of, you have a good idea, but you're going about it a not so good way? What's going on here? Um, well, I, there are people who ascribe to the view that uh, this, this is Naomi trying to trap Boaz into a shotgun wedding. <laughs> so to speak. Um, but I suggest that that's not what, that's not the right uh, way to see this. Um, and that's because of Ruth's character in, in this whole story. There's never a point in this story that Ruth's character is compromised. Uh, she's known as a worthy person, just as Boaz is known as a worthy person. And they both act righteously consistently all throughout this book. And we also see signs of that concern here in the midst of, of a situation that could be very, that could be perceived very poorly. We see signs of them taking care to not be perceived poorly. We see a Boaz say, keeping her 
close to him during the night when she's vulnerable, but also gets up before daylight, before anyone can recognize them and says, hey, you better get out of here before anyone sees you and don't let anybody know you were here. So that could give off some wrong perceptions. And so I see Boaz protecting her in a godly fashion. And I don't see Ruth um, doing anything improper throughout this whole book. And so I think Naomi's plan does pan out. I think it is a godly plan. It's morally good. It's practically good. And I believe it's ultimately um, a plan that is fitting with what God would want them to do. And I think when we look at these things uh, through this lens, it, it helps us to learn how to go about making plans for ourselves even today. You know, when we think about our plans, the first thing to ask really is, is your plan morally good? Uh, my father was a pastor. He just retired last year after 41 years of ministry. And he would tell stories of how people would come to him and say, God wants me to marry this person. And my dad would say, no, he doesn't. <laughs> and the guy would say, how do you know, pastor? And he'd say, because you're already married. <laughs> you have a spouse. God does not want you to leave her to go after this person. You do not have biblical reason to leave this person and pursue them. So I know, I know God is not leading you to pursue that person. And then you got to ask yourself, well, who is? If it's not God, who is that? What is that leading you at? So the, the first way to kind of screen your plans is to ask, is this according to God's law? That's, why he gave, that's one of the reasons he gave us his law, to give us a criteria, something to measure up our activities with, to see, are we going in the way that God wants us to go? Are we following after God's intent for our lives? But a lot of times, God's revealed law his revealed will doesn't tell us everything we want to know does it and so there's subjective elements to these things you know where am i going to live what am i going to wear today what should i do for a living you know these sorts of things who should i marry god doesn't tell us these things but he gives us um, wisdom to deal with those things and so um, that's where the second element comes in i think is it a practically good plan is wisdom um, present here. And that's where I love this verse from the Proverbs. It says, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. A multitude of counselors, there's safety. Sometimes in my younger years, I wouldn't ask counsel because I didn't want their answer. And uh, that's not a very wise way to go about things, is it? Uh, it's kind of stubborn and prideful, I would say. Um, but as I've grown older, I've learned, you know what, if, if the answer is no, I should probably learn that the easier way than the hard way. <laughs> Been down the hard road a few times. And uh, when you seek counsel and you seek counsel broadly, that, that helps you kind of glean wisdom from multiple perspectives. Because sometimes someone else is seeing things that you don't see because you're clouded. You're, 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 um, your heart is clouded because it's attached to something that it ought not to be. And so that wisdom element is really important when we're making our plans. Take counsel. It's really important. It's a godly thing to do. And then lastly, it is, is this going to leave right impressions, right? Is this going to look right? Um, there are times when you 
could do something, um, but it would give a wrong impression. And you might be in the right, but is your perception right? I had a, a soldier that was working with me during the deployment, and uh, he would fill his free time with uh, playing video games. And I allowed for that because, you know, I figure, hey, if you, I don't have something for you to do and there ain't something better for you to do, have fun, you know. But he would always wear these um, large earphones on his head with a microphone. And um, I, unfortunately, that gives the perception that I don't care what's going on around me. And I challenged him on that. He, he didn't see it, but... Um, it really did create a perception problem that proved unhelpful to him. Unhelpful between the two of us, as I'm his uh, supervisor, and I felt like I, he's not approachable, he's not interested in, in being part of our plans. But also, as I talked to other people who would come into our chapel, and every time they saw him, he's wearing these earphones. Now, he's not doing anything wrong. Nothing morally wrong, nothing outside of the guidance that I'd given him. But it had a perception that was not helpful to him. And, and I think that godly wisdom teaches us to mind our perceptions as well. That's important because that has an impact on how we can engage with other people. It impacts how we are perceived as loving or not loving to other people. And that is a godly matter. And so as we examine this uh, this test case here in scripture, we see some very clear principles for judging our plans when we make those plans according to God's will, according to godly wisdom, and managing those perceptions. Now, we would, I'd also want to say there's one more thing, and that is to make our plans in faith, in faith. Now, um, now Naomi and Ruth didn't have a verse to look at from God that says, you're going to marry Boaz and Boaz is going to take care of you. But they had God's law and God's wisdom and all of these things working together to paint a picture for them. And everything seemed to be lining up. Did they have faith placed in the right place as they made these plans? Um, I believe that Naomi and Ruth did have their faith placed in the right place during these plans because of how they responded to their plans not working exactly as they planned. How did they respond? Their plans did not work out just like they planned. They, they planned to get Boaz to be their redeemer, but Boaz said, I can't. Unfortunately, Boaz, had, there was somebody else preventing him from fulfilling that function. According to the law, the closest relative had the first opportunity to care for them. And he wasn't the closest relative. And so even if he wanted to, even if Ruth wanted to, it wouldn't be proper because of God's law, because of the way uh, it was all set up. And so their plan didn't work out as they hoped. And we see the excitement that was so vibrant here at the beginning of chapter 3 start to diminish a little bit but not completely. In fact, I think it's actually kind of surprising that Naomi and Ruth are actually happy at how it turned out anyway. It didn't go as they planned, but it changed 
and they were still content because what they were really after wasn't necessarily the, to have Boaz be their husband, but they were after God caring for them and God taking care of their needs. And God was going to do that one way or the other, whether through the closer relative or through Boaz. And, and by them being content with that change in their plans, I think they show that their heart is in the right place, that they have faith in God who's going to take care of them, not faith in their plans and everything working out just as they'd hoped. And that's really important for us to think about and remember as well, uh, because as uh, is so well known, our plans often, almost always, don't work out like we plan, do they? There's always adjustments to be made. Are we so focused on our plans and our desires that we lose focus on the main thing, which is being glorifying and honoring to God and following his will and his intent, which might be different from ours? I think that distinction can show up from time to time is when we get upset that our plans don't work out just as we'd planned. It kind of shows that our heart is it in the exact right place. And there's a room for us to improve as we learn to see, I need to be trusting God when my plans don't work out like I'd hoped. And so in this passage, I think we see some very, very valuable lessons for us today. We see that one, planning is good. Sometimes God uses our plans, sometimes he doesn't, but at all points, we need to be looking and trusting in God. And then as we make plans, when God allows us to, it's good for us to examine those plans. Are they according to God's law? Are they in keeping with God's wisdom? Do they set good expectations? And is our heart trusting in God and happy to accomplish his plan, not our own? These are super important things for us as we navigate this life that God has for us. And I pray that this message is a blessing to you today, as it has been for me, for sure. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I give thanks to you for this encouraging message from your word that teaches us the value and place of planning in the Christian life. Lord, I pray that we'll always remember and recognize our dependence on you during especially during the times when we make our plans and may our plans always be pointed at accomplishing your will not our own lord give us wisdom there are many times when we don't know what to do when we don't know where to go give us wisdom give us counselors Help us to see what your will is for us. And give us a heart that desires to follow after you. And I pray that you'll uh, continue to work in through all of these things as you bring about your ultimate plan, a plan to make us more like you, and a plan to bring in your kingdom here on earth. Lord, you, we know your plan is sure. Your plan will happen. Lord, help us to be in line with that as, as you bring it to pass. And may we always be looking forward and having faith that you are bringing your purposes to pass. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.